Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of The Media Beat with Maureen and Claire. I guess you know the format by now, if you're avid listeners. Um, we're going to instigate a conversation between Maureen Kerr and uh, one of her closest confidants, um, Claire Tavernier. And as I've said many a times, Maureen leads the media practice at Arthur D. Little as a partner with that firm, a burgeoning practice. Um, which is doing great business with various companies talking about uh, media strategy, as well as investment companies talking about um, potential ways to invest their funds in all things media. And her longstanding colleague and someone who I now am very happy to call a colleague, Claire Tavernier, um, has also worked in the industry uh, in very senior roles extensively. She works now a lot as an analyst, um, a commentator, uh, also does um, consulting work with startups and companies of larger sizes, again, all in the media space, uh, particularly in the digital media space, for all those reasons, makes it a perfect accompaniment to Maureen. Uh, my name's Oliver Turnbull, and I'll be trying to steer the conversation and, as usual, learning lots and lots about the world of media, which I have a peripheral and very amateur interest in. Good day to Maureen and Claire. Hello. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Oliver. Very well indeed. Hi, Oliver. Very well. Thank you very much. How are you? Good. Yes. Oh, thank you. I'm very. I'm. I'm very well, and uh, looking forward. Looking forward to the weekend. Um, so, what we are going to start talking about is uh, Avod, which I thought uh, rather stupidly was. Um, uh, a basketball player and then Claire corrected me to say that actually uh, there is a, a baseball player called uh, what is it A-Rod A-Ron I don't know anyway we're talking about A-Vod A-V-O-D which as I understand it is advertising on video on demand and there are some interesting machinations happening in that area at the moment I think one of the main ones being the consideration of advertising on Netflix um Claire I'll come to you first just for a sort of explanation of the space which I think all of us have come across but we probably don't give it much thought when we're consuming media from I don't know Netflix Amazon Prime or YouTube Yes, so AVOD, advertiser-funded video on demand, uh, I think most of us are familiar with through YouTube. So it's this, these annoying ads that you see, you know, coming up when you watch a YouTube video. And if it's a long YouTube video, then they, then they suddenly come up in the middle, usually interrupting whatever you're watching. But it's been a very good model for YouTube, uh, who uh, obviously doesn't, doesn't charge a subscription. Recently, Net so Netflix's model uh, has been what is called SVOD, which is subscription video on demand. And that's pretty self-explanatory. You pay a monthly fee and you don't get advertising at all. Now, traditionally, the TV world has been more of a hybrid uh, system where you do pay some money, especially for cable channels, or you pay a license fee for public broadcasters. And then you also watch advertising in, in many in many cases, not not on the BBC in the UK, but in, but on other other platforms. Netflix, as we all know, has had some uh, financial um, difficulties recently, and has announced that they were going to start introducing advertising into their system and potentially a, a new subscription, either reduced subscription uh, tier or potentially completely free. Uh, which would be advertiser-funded. And it will be very interesting. I 
I don't know that they realize how complicated AVOD is. And that was, um, that I think is, is quite an interesting thing to, to think about. It's very difficult to do well. Uh, there, there are, first of all, it's very difficult to monetize well. So revenues, uh, CPMs, um, or, you know, cost per million is, is quite small still. Uh, and it's not very difficult to deliver well. I think we've all been in this, in this situation where you're watching a show and literally the ad comes in in the middle of, of a, of a line or a dialogue in a very odd place, whereas obviously advertising on TV is very formatted. It's, you know, there are very specific ad break moments which have been in the formats forever. None of the more recent shows that have been designed for streaming have, have, have natural ad breaks. So all of these will be, will be, will have to be added. But the main problem with AVOD is you need to sell the advertising to advertisers and that's done on a local level. So the most successful AVOD systems at the moment in, in what I would call premium content, so excluding YouTube, have been in the US where Hulu has you know, gotten a, a, a pretty good uh, market and there are a few other local competitors and they're doing okay. I'm guessing the second biggest market now in terms of advertising is probably the UK. But Netflix is in, what is it, 50 countries now? You know, launching AVOD for Netflix would mean having advertising relationships in these 50 countries with advertisers, which is, which is a huge operation, very costly, and something they've never done before. Or it would mean working with a partner, but there are very, I can't think of a partner apart from Google, YouTube, and potentially Facebook, who would have those sort of global relationships uh, with advertisers at a level where you can start selling them premium inventory, which is the main thing that Netflix will want to do, is to sell at a fairly high premium. So I, either they're underestimating the difficulty or they know very well how hard it will be. And I, I would tend to go with the second option. They know very well how hard it's going to be, uh, but they absolutely need to announce something to the market and therefore are playing down how difficult it is going to do to implement, to be to implement it. If I've got that right, there seem to be sort of three pillars of difficulty, if you like. There's the actual, uh, the, the technicalities behind it, making sure that the user experience isn't too destroyed by inserting relevant adverts at the right time, doing it technically, and presumably making sure it's all controlled. Um, then there seems to be the localization thing, which sort of has two points. One is the, uh, the, the myriad commercial agreements you'll need to have with local uh, with local affiliate stations or services or whatever, uh, not not only the cultural differences in adverts that you need to presumably cater for, and there seems to be something that you're suggesting on the creative side as well, in that uh, um, Bridgerton isn't designed to have adverts in the middle, and you might be saying something dramatic or, I don't know, in Bridgerton, falling into a fainting funk or whatever, just as an advertisement for cement comes on. It's sort of a bit jarring, potentially. Um, Maureen, what, what are your thoughts? So if you were if you were brought in to do some strategic consulting on AVOD for Netflix, what would, what would you see as the main challenges? How would you coach them through that? I think, I think the baseline here is Netflix doesn't have a choice. So, you know, the subscriptions market, so the SVOD market now is completely saturated globally. Um, and I think they're probably in a really good place and position, and I would suggest this nonetheless, uh, that their local uh, uh, partnerships are going to be key. So very much sort of building on what uh, Claire has said, uh, there's no global player. 
Will they want to get into bed with a Google? Will they want to get in bed with Facebook? Now, Facebook is struggling, so why not? Have they already made enemies uh, of, uh, of, of, of such a potential partnerships? Perhaps. Uh, uh, but look, they made enemies of the studios. Um, well, they were friends of the studios. Now they're foes of the studios. So um, uh, for, look, for Netflix, you have to take it bottom up. So it is key to have local, targeted, uh, and technical um, expertise. So I would go in on a regional basis, on a local basis, and, and, and really just sort of open up my doors to say, we've got to get this done uh, and not be shy about it. Now, um, you know, in the UK, why not ITV? Why not Sky? Uh, why not some smaller players? And I'm, I'm sure that there are, and we know that there are, uh, some technically savvy companies out there that can certainly facilitate. And then they just have to go to the agencies. Um, and really sort of figure out how they can work with their data. The shock to the system for Netflix is going to be opening up their books, showing the data, showing the information about viewership. And that, I think, is probably what's going to be potentially nervous because you don't want this 80-20 Pareto rule of saying, actually, the majority of people have been watching only my two big shows. You know, so So I think they're going to have to be clever. I think they're aware of that. I don't think they are foolish enough to suggest that they can be ready by the end of the year. But that said, they had to come out with something to the market. So yeah, so the advice here is you can't look back. You've got to do something about it. Avod is the alternative. Avod is supplementary. It, there will be a hybrid. There will be people who still are able to pay for, because it's not expensive, able to pay for the subscription, the annual subscription. Uh, and there will be people that are willing, willing to pay for uh, the, the free ad funded um, service. So it is going to be local, it is going to be partnerships, um, and it's just going to be clever and smart and agile about it. Uh, and, and looking at Netflix's history, I, I, I'm assuming that they can do that. So that's my, I mean, that's my general advice or view on the situation. <laughs> Claire, yes, I don't I mean, know. You, yeah, you know, I mean, it was really interesting what you said about they'll have to open their books. There are two ways you can sell advertising online you can sell um can sell advertising linked to specific content and that would be you know for the tv the tv example would be that you you know you're selling an ad during the super bowl or during x factor or something and you're telling people your your ad will be shown next to a high premium you know high volume content that you want to be associated with and the great thing about this is you can charge a, a very large premium the bad thing about this is you need to uh, tell them exactly how many people have watched. And it's, so it's not bad for TV stations because they're used to this. It's also how uh, some of the newspaper sites sell advertising. You know, they'll get sponsorship for a whole section and that's based on the number of people who go to that section and it's high premium, etc. The other way you can sell advertising is what's called runoff site, which is essentially what, what YouTube does. And then you're not, you're not selling content, you're selling an audience and you're saying, I'm not going to tell you next to what your ad will be shown. But I will tell you that you will be targeting, you know, women over 50 in affluent areas in the UK because Netflix can do that. And that's one of the advantages they have. They do have a lot of data on their subscribers, even though sometimes all they do is have data on the main subscriber. But still, they can tell the, their, their, their advertisers, we can advertise to people who tend to watch romantic com comedies, which, you know, without generalizing, may well be an, a, a demographic that's attractive to, you know, 
some consumer goods advertisers, or they can say, we can sell you uh, ads that will go to people who have watched the Formula One documentary. And again, I can't promise you who that will be, but I can promise you that the person you're going to, who's going to sell your ad, because they see your ad will have, will have be that, that demographic. And if you sell like this, you, you don't have to disclose as much information, which will be attractive to Netflix, but you also don't attract the same premiums. So you need to sell more. And, and it goes back to the same point as, okay, a few years ago, Mark Pritchard came out from Procter & Gamble. So he holds the purse of the most amount of money, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, digital and non-digital advertising across all of Procter & Gamble's brands. And he said, no, you know, I need to understand exactly if I'm buying premium inventory, like on publishers' sites or on broadcast sites, I need to understand exactly who the audience is and where the advert is being placed. I do not want, and you may recall, I do not want, there was a big backlash, I do not want my uh, soap powder or, 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 or my uh, bicycles, you know, next to anything associated with ISIS or terrorism or the like. So, you know, programmatic advertising is still not fixed yet. So it, programmatic advertising is not reliable enough so I think whilst that is a, a, a good way to get going, but it's not, it's not, it's tricky. It's tricky. And I think there's a reputational backlash. It is tricky, but it's easier for Netflix than YouTube because Netflix has a limited inventory. It's large, but it's limited and it, they know what's in there as opposed to YouTube. YouTube cannot guarantee that the ad will not be shown against pornographic content. You know, they can guarantee they can put as much as many guidelines as possible against it, but because they don't upload the content and they don't have control over the total content on the site, they can't guarantee it. Netflix knows what's on their platform and they don't upload things. They are the ones uploading the content. They are the ones controlling the input. And so they can provide from a programmatic perspective, they can definitely provide better um, controls than a site like YouTube or even Facebook. Oh, yeah. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So we would then treat Netflix as a walled garden, effectively. But yeah. then but then the downside of a walled garden is, uh, okay, so you need to explain to me exactly who is sitting within that walled garden. So it goes back to the same point of, I think you're going to have to disclose and open up your books in terms of who exactly is watching, when they're watching and how they're watching. And I, and I think there's, not, there's nothing wrong with that because I, I don't think Netflix has a choice. They will have to do that in order to attract the agencies and the brands who, to get a premium ticket. So I totally agree with you. Can I go back to the other point that you mentioned that there are two ways of thinking about this advertising then? So it's the it's the sponsorship, it's the wraparound, um, and then it's that kind of sitting alongside. What about branded content? It may be called something completely different these days, but do you remember the days of uh, um, Fremantle when we were thinking about X Factor and we were saying, we cannot just put a can of Coke in front of Simon Cowell and, and expect that to be the, the extent of our creative sort of input in terms of promoting Coca-Cola, we need to integrate it, you know, and, and that was the reason why we acquired a branded content company at Radical, you know, is to bring that sort of creative nous to the situation. Now, branded content surely is a better way of weaving, you know, the brands, like a, like a Nike tells a story about, you know, high-performance, high-performance women. You know, isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't it really very much for Netflix to say, let's, let's, let's partner up with some smart agencies 
around the branded content and work with the writers and work with the content creators? Or is that just so far-fetched that, you know, and that's the holy grail, that nobody can achieve that? Because it seems to be a better way of doing it, you know. What do you, what it's, do you a, it's a, it's a, a high-value, low-volume play. Yeah. So you can only do a few years. You could probably make quite a lot of money on the... Well, could you? I mean, you know, you, first of all, there are only a few global brands that would be interested because they have a similar footprint to Netflix. So you'd have to find a brand that's interested in the entire global audience to Netflix. In that way, in that sense, a national player like Hulu or ITVX has, has you know, is, is more attractive for a local branded play than a global plan. It's quite difficult to do anything brand related on a global level. I mean, that's what you have to keep remembering. Most brands do not work globally. There will be a few. Nike is a good example. Procter & Gamble has done global campaigns, although they tend to have local activations. You, it, It's not impossible to think about one of these brands doing a show for Netflix and paying high premium for it. But how many a year can you do that? There, so, you know, you, you could probably do three or four a year. They would probably bring in reasonable amounts of money at a fairly high margin. But like in terms of total volume, it's still very small compared to the size of Netflix. The other thing you can do, obviously, is brand integration. For the, but you can run into the same problem. So, I mean, first, first of all, it's quite hard to do in Bridgerton, although you never know. But let's say, you know, in sex education, you start putting cans of, of Coca-Cola everywhere. First of all, you need to find a brand that, again, will be present in most of the geographies where Netflix is present, because otherwise, why would you? But let's assume it's a show that gets watched a lot in the US and the brand is okay in the UK and in Western Europe and the brand is, is happy to sort of target those markets. Then, then yes, you can do brand integration deals. Those are they're great because they're non-disruptive and they don't, you know, they're, they're easy to to. In most cases, they're easy to integrate into the productions, but are they going to fund Netflix long term? I don't think so. I think they're a nice add-on, but I think they remain quite small in comparison with, you know, uh, volume advertising. So the ideal company that can get this right, just as you're speaking, Claire, I'm thinking about who it could be, is Amazon. I mean, Amazon is probably best placed don't you think i mean it's got very sure i was just thinking of the shows that sit on amazon and their efforts in sports uh sports live sports as well which is a natural sort of attraction of various brands and you can integrate i think brands quite nicely and neatly into either tennis uh, you know uh, high-end watches for example um and or you know programs like top gear you know, I don't know if it's allowed to be called Top Gear now, but it's called something else. I can't remember now what the name is. Um, but Clarkson's program. Um, you know, yeah, there's the a Grand kind of Tour, a I think it's called, isn't it? That's it. Is it tour? Yeah, something tour like that. France yeah, I don't watch it myself. Yeah, not Tour de France or something, but global. I mean, that, but 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 you've also got that that connection with commerce. So yeah. I'm just wondering if 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 that would be a, more of a natural uh, lean in towards um, Avod model. Amazon could secure it, right? As opposed to, as we've already sort of highlighted and outlined the difficulties surrounding Netflix. Um, so it's very interesting. I mean, they haven't talked about it, uh, Amazon, and they haven't pushed very hard in the direction of, of selling advertising so far. It's not something, as far as I know, that they've invested a lot of time and effort in. They do a little bit of ads on Prime, but they tend to be ads, as you've probably seen, they tend to be ads for their other programs. So it's cross-promotion. Um, they have. They don't 
do they have uh, relationships with the big media agencies? Probably, probably not at the level that with the right teams, but they could expand it. They certainly have a quite a lot of suitable content. They also are now more and more, they have more library content than um, than Netflix has, which is helpful because library content has usually made, been made for TV and TV content that's made, made for TV tends to have natural ad breaks, naturally. Uh, so that's helpful. No, the company that is best placed to succeed in a hybrid uh, model, and I think they will, is Disney. Because Disney uh, has, you know, all the experience of Hulu that's done really well. They have uh, networks in a lot of countries that have sold advertising in the past. They understand advertiser-friendly, kid-friendly advertising and family-friendly advertising. They've already come out and said, you know, these are the guidelines we put in place for our advertising. They clearly have thought about it. Advertising is part of their DNA and has always been part of their DNA in a way that uh, it hasn't for Netflix or indeed Amazon. So I, I mean, Netflix has also said they were looking at Apple tiers, and I think Disney will do something. It'll be interesting to see what they do. In this case, I think they're better placed than their competitors. Certainly, certainly in the okay. US. I'd like to, well, Amazon, um, I'm going to come back to Amazon because I'm, I'm curious about Amazon. So sorry about this, but, uh, uh, but Amazon owns IMDb, and yeah. they have now renamed IMDb, IMDb to Freebie with a view to specifically, you know, uh, provide an ad-based platform. So, so, so it's a subscriptions model and they're opening it up. Now, that's a natural way. If anyone who doesn't know IMDb, it's all about, you know, a, a curation of, of film actors. It's a way of, of putting up one's discography, biography. It's LinkedIn uh, for actors, isn't it? Yeah. And whatnot. It's, it's, it's basically, yeah, it's a community for actors, but it's also a community for promoting films. Yeah. And it's also uh, uh, going to be a very interesting way of how you spend a film's budget on dis for a discovery perspective. You know, of, of the next film will show, you know, um, uh, you know, Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick. You know, so um, so I think there's a. There, there, I I would watch quite carefully what Amazon plans to do. I wouldn't I wouldn't write them off in terms of. Uh, you know, ad-funded um, uh, platform. But I agree with you in terms of Disney. I think Disney is probably going to be, you know, they have the right to win and they probably will win. Yeah. Uh, IMDb is a, a sort of massive source of connections as well between actors and the films they've been in and the chemistry between actors and how successful certain combinations are. In terms of analytics and coming from a data perspective, which is kind of my, my back, um, you'd have thought there is a, a lot of valuable data to be mined in a, in a resource such as IMDb because it's got critic reviews and it's got punter reviews. It's uh, it's interesting that Amazon own IMDb. I wonder if that's um, part of a, some massive strategy or is it just... IMDb could make a lot of money. We'll buy that. Mm, they they own IMDb because they like data, and I th I mean you know slightly generalization, but they they I, as you say IMDb is a brilliant source of data and analytics. I I agree. You shouldn't dismiss Amazon. You should never dismiss Amazon because they're they've proven over and over again that you know when they start doing something they do it quite well. I, I think Amazon's strength is in bundling and affiliate marketing. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go for, you know, if, if they push that angle uh, further and think about Avod in a slightly different way, uh, because, you know, they have so many other things they could sell you, you know, and they could, they could create very easily create a slightly different model for Avod, the click-through model for Avod that, you know, would be 
innovative and they could fulfill in a way that nobody else could. Uh, but yes, I agree. I, I think they, I would certainly not dismiss them. But uh, if, if, we're, if we're talking about traditional selling premium inventory on a digital pla- global digital streaming platform, I think right now the ones that could do it most easily would be Disney. I agree Amazon is, is well-placed to invent and they certainly have the money as well uh, to do it. Uh, Netflix will talk about it a lot. I think it's going to take them longer than they indicate to get it right. What about Sky? I mean, the, the subscriptions, as I know only too well, being a fan of the Premier League, so much higher than everybody else. Is there is there some sort of correction on the way with regard to Sky? They seem some sort of outlier in the way in the amount that they charge. Um, I think as long as people are paying, they're not going to change their prices. So the the only way they're going to decrease, and you know, if anything, they need that money more than ever. Premium content is becoming more premium. That's for sure. So if they have access to premium content, and in this case they do, which is the Premier League, and people are, and you know, unhappy but but acceptant that they have to pay that sort of money to watch it, as you are, Oliver then why would they stop? You know, I suspect they've had a little bit of, of churn, but clearly not enough for them to review their, their their numbers. And as we all know, it's much more difficult to bring prices back up than it is to decrease them. So they, it will be a last resort for them to try and decrease them. I'm, I'm sorry. It's funny. I, I always say that f- football is a... Football is a particularly strange product in that it doesn't matter how rubbish it is, you cannot do anything but follow the team that you love, uh, which makes it an extraordinary business model. So however bad Spurs play, I will still want to watch them and pay a premium for that. And indeed, uh, you know, I I think about how much I pay for Sky and then uh, there's a big boxing match or whatever that is very popular and you pay another 25 quid and you go, golly, that's expensive. But you're quite right, Claire. Premium is getting more premium. You'll do almost anything to watch that. Uh, unique event. No, I was going to say, you know, the only one because ESPN is also by far the biggest ticket in in cable charges in the UK, in the US, um, and represents the by and again people they remain the the thing that people don't want to cancel. You know, they'll cancel everything else because they'll say, well, you know, I can get that on Netflix now, or I can get that OTT yeah. OTT being over the top. I don't need to bundle it into a subscription. But they'll want to watch ESPN, which is the the US sports channel, for the same reason. The, the, the I'll just say one thing about about Sky. Sky is in a unique position, in my view, because it's an aggregator of, of, of content. So it'll have and it attracts uh, so many more, you know, um, uh, other alternative sort of companies that want to put their uh, content on the platform because. Sky has a very deep and loyal relationship with its customer base through whatever means that's been, and that's been mostly through sport. Um, but what it's doing, I think, very cleverly now is uh, is, is getting closer to the customers that last meter through its uh, manufacturing of a TV set. So Sky Glass, uh, you know, that will be an additional way or means to lock us in as, as, as an audience and as, and as a customer. And of course, now under the ownership of Comcast, the US, the major US um, uh, media company, um, it will have Paramount, Paramount Plus, and also uh, Showtime, and that's also on the continent. So you've got, I think, some a formidable access to content internally, and it's also 
uh, creating its own originals and it will have its own studios in Elstree, uh, which, which will come on stream at the end of the year. So Sky is Sky is very well placed in my in my view. Uh, so I think the all it's it's able to very cleverly you know lock lock us in. Um, I, I would as as a loyal customer, I, I'm still on the on the fence in terms of Now TV, which was their uh, attempt at sort of a lower cost um, uh, package. Um, I'm not quite sure where that is at the moment, and did it cannibalise some of the. Uh, the major sort of sky uh, more premium customers don't know but if anyone's going to cannibalize their customers it should be themselves rather than a third party uh, yeah i think now tv has been very clever actually because they've um I, they've replicated their subscription model in that in order to get now tv you need you you've got packages right so you can you buy the movie package or the sports package or the kids package or the entertainment package so they keep they, they're constantly upselling you i say this as somebody who reluctantly now buys two packages of now tv because of and they do have and the reason we do is they do have some interesting exclusive content that nobody else has including uh, in our household, all the Harry Potter movies, but in Game of Thrones, the HBO content, you, which you can't get anywhere else in in the U in the UK. So I, I think now TV has probably cannibalized a, f a few subscriptions, but I suspect it's also attracted a lot of new subscribers that wouldn't go to Sky over the uh, as a, as a as a satellite play because of many reasons, and that are now accessing the content. So it's it's been a bit of a sleep sleeper success now to be i don't know the numbers but i wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, if it was doing quite well i don't know yeah. to be honest it would be interesting yeah. to look it up one thing that occurs to me from from listening to you is um having an interest in ai and and, and running ai projects um what ai does effectively uh at the high level is categorize optimize and forecast and in terms of the categorize and optimize i can see many many use cases whereby you'll gather enormous amounts of data to understand the segmentation of your audience and therefore what might appeal to them from an advertising perspective but crucially this optimize this optimizing engine kind of concept which says there are loads of different ways that you can snip up your advertising and slot it into programs run a model it's called reinforcement learning run a model which says what is the optimum way according to the data i have that i can insert adverts and what type of adverts to what category of customer to increase my value because i think there's been quite a lot of cynicism about actually the power the actual return you get from digital advertising i'm assuming on platforms like youtube because it's a little bit more put it out there and and hopefully some of it'll stick but i see massive use cases for ai here particularly in the categorize and optimize space given what you've told me um am i missing something or or, or do you think i'm <laughs> i think i'm right for once so I, well, of course you're always right, Oliver. Uh, I, I agree that data will be critical, but I think the problem with AI and machine learning is that it depends on historical data that you feed into the system. And part of the problem here is the lack of success stories. So there's a, you know, there's not, so I think as, as, as it happens, it will get better, but, and it, the, and I'm, well, you know, in the US, it's been going on for a while now. And I, I suspect Hulu now has enough data that they can start mining that and using it to learn how to get better at it. But it's, uh, 
it's still very early days. I don't think the YouTube data can successfully be used to see what would happen on a premium VOD site because because it's very different. It, it's very much a volume play. It would be like saying, you know, if I'm a newspaper, if I'm the Times, you know, let let's look at Google Ads and and, and learn from that. It's just a different system. So. Yes, of course, it's a data play and data analytics will play a critical role in understanding this. I think where AI will be interesting in machine learning is that it's going to be very much behavior-led, audience behavior-led in a way that maybe uh, other, other data plays aren't. So understanding what makes people watch something or stay with something, what's the, for instance, what's the ideal length of an ad, uh, which is a big question. Can you, do you do short ads, long ads? Do you use your TV ads 30 seconds and put them directly online, etc.? cetera? Uh, those are all, do you put a click through? Do people click through? You know, when you're passively watching a show, is there any incentive for you to go away from your show and click on an ad? Question mark. So there are a lot of questions there that data will help answer, but partly the problem is we just don't know yet. So we can't feed the machine with stuff because we don't have it. So true. I think, Oliver, I think this is going to be exactly, AI is exactly what Netflix or walled garden environments need. I think it's critical for them to start to deploy, you know, an AVOD platform um, strategy. I, 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 I think it's going to be essential for them. Don't, don't, don't you think? And, and it can also, I don't know what you think, Claire, could it reintroduce the second screen um, environment or so you don't lose the audience and the attention on your main screen and you move across back to your second screen as everyone these days it's it's, it's a bit more comfortable whereas second screen introduction five i don't know eight years ago uh it was a distraction it was the equivalent to go and make a cup of tea sort of thing you know um and when you came back you lost a plot and you changed you know to a different uh, program so i i don't i don't know i think uh, i i don't think the i i think i think this is at the right time for for AI for wall gardens and I wonder about the second screen. I wonder about the second screen. I think that's brilliant. I hadn't thought about the second screen. It feels so very uh, ten years ago, but you're right. You know, because also when Netflix started, nobody was watching it on TV, but now people are watching it on the big screen. Uh, and the second screen would allow you to be much more targeted. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting thought. Well, it's AI. funny, we, we I, talked I, about I, that no. in the entertainment industry uh, when I, I worked for a uh, gaming and gambling company. Uh, and you, we didn't call it second screen. We didn't call it second screen, but it is second screen because what it was is you're watching a, a, a football match and ping, something comes up on your phone saying, would you like to bet on Harry Kane scoring the next goal? And of course, the thing pinging, you knew that you liked, uh, sorry about going on about Tottenham, but also knew that Harry Kane had just scored. So they were tempting you there with their bet. So that was a second screen thing in gambling, frankly. Not that I'm proud to have worked for that for particularly. Um, but it's exactly, I think, what you're talking about. And coming back to the AI, I, I really see the use case. Three reasons. There's tons and tons of data. It's not a complete data set, Claire, to your point. Um, AI is perfect for categorization and optimization. And that's the use case we have here. And three, I think you've got no choice. The complexities that you've just brilliantly described make me realize uh, standard analytics and a human brain and some spreadsheets cannot solve this problem. It's impossible. And therefore, you have no choice but to utilize to some degree AI. And I was 
wondering if we could move on to um, some other aspects of uh, trying to predict how viewers watch uh, content, consume content, uh, and changing habits and how that affects, frankly, the amount of money that people creating content can make. Because there's this concept of windowing that you've educated me in uh, over the week, which is another way of controlling access, as I see it, and squeezing the value out of content. Um, Probably best if, I don't know, Maureen, could you just describe the concept of of windowing and and how it works and how it adds value, i.e. squeezes more money out of punters um, for people, for example, putting out a blockbuster movie? Uh, Yeah, I I would... would, uh not use the phrase uh, squeezing more money out of punters but i love it we're, we're <laughs> um, among I, friends I will, I will put that in my little black book to use at an appropriate time <laughs> but i love that this is probably simply put <laughs> it is, it sorry is, increasing uh, 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 shareholder value sorry excuse me <laughs> um but no so 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 this let's step back a bit so so this is this is effectively now we're moving into the film industry um, uh, territory alongside um, so big studios like Universal, Sony, uh, Disney, of course, um, and, uh, and and of course the, the, the streamers being sort of you know Netflix and, and, and Amazon. So w- windowing is a is is a concept deployed by big Hollywood studios in their relationship with cinemas, or if we're in the US, theaters, um, and it's about the uh, uh, time uh, frame. Uh, that uh, once a film is made and launched and scheduled to be shown in cinemas, uh, the time that the cinemas will have exclusivity around a particular film, and 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 it's been in the uh, in the industry debated, discussed, digested, and uh, <laughs> reviewed many many times as to how long that period of time should be, um, and and all the data shows uh, historically that you make the most amount of money uh, in the first sort of three weekends or say four weekends, uh, but it's mostly three weekends, two to three weekends uh, where everybody goes to the cinema, watches it and your grossing of your, your, your income, your box office income is pretty significant. And then it tells off um, with the introduction of, and the, uh, uh, there are two things going, going on with the introduction of streaming um, video on demand, um, people in their homes watching uh, watching content. Uh, the subject of windowing uh, came back into the industry for discussion to say uh, there is now another avenue to reach uh, viewers and viewers want to be in their home, you know, with their friends or with their family. Um, and so there was a big discussion about whether or not the exclusivity period should be examined again and should be revisited and maybe reduced. So there's a big lobbying effort uh, by you know, others uh, in the industry to say, you know, should we consider that? Now, the pandemic just was a catalytic uh, um, event that, that, that basically allowed for what I'm calling the big experiment. And the big experiment is now, yay, the studios can say, wow, we don't need to put this in theatres because guess what? No one's going to the theatres. The theatres are closed. So for the period of a year and a half, the big experiment took place to say either the films would not be launched or would be launched because, of course, a lot of the films, Mulan, um, some some Disney films, um, uh, uh, James Bond, um, a few other tentpole, what we call tentpoles, were quite significantly um, high-prized 
and and very expensive films, um, you know, had been made, were sitting on the shelf, and frankly, Disney, uh, Bob Chepek said, I've got to make some money out of this. My theme parks are are closed. I've spent a lot of money. I've got to, I need to make some income. And the only way to do that would be to put it on the platforms where people are watching. So put it on Netflix, put it on Amazon, uh, and put it on um, either their own streaming services. So for the last year and a half, we had everybody setting up their own streaming services to put their own content, Disney Plus being one of them, you've got Paramount and others. And, and, and that in itself became, right, there's no window here. There's no window that we can consider for exclusivity for cinemas and let's move it to day and date, which meant it's going to be launched on the streaming service. That's windowing. I'll pause there so that <laughs> we can add some other questions to <laughs> this discussion here. But that in itself is a, because it's a complicated subject, but that in itself is what windowing is about. And the big experiment has happened maybe we'll continue to some extent, but certainly at the back end of last year, all of the studios have seen, has seen the data, has seen the income generated from uh, streaming and has sat back now and reconsidered whether or not they should be placing these films directly with a period of exclusivity cinemas, as well as on the streaming services. But there's uh, economics to consider, there's cost to consider, and there's a willingness of the audience to pay and either go to the theatre, go to the cinema, or sit in their home and watch. But I'll pause there so Claire can at least contribute, and then we can have a further discussion about the implications and implications of all this and what's happening, which is extremely exciting from my perspective. Yes, that, that was a brilliant explanation. I think it's important to... Um... Well, there are a few things that happened with the big experiment, as you call it, which I, I really love as a name. And it, I would say that most of the big experiment was was driven by Disney uh, and that the reason Disney drove it is that for them, there was a very, very immediate and clear benefit to forgetting uh, theatrical exploitation, i.e. launching in cinemas and going straight to streaming. They were actively trying to increase their subscribers' numbers. And while they were losing money from not showing it on cinemas, the impact potentially on, on increased subscribers, and, it, and that proved right for them, was significant enough because they, they wanted to lock these people in uh, that it was worth the, the, the financial hit. I mean, as you said, they didn't have much of a choice anyway, but it, it was worth the financial hit because they were that keen to develop their platform. That worked well. Their... The, their uh, launch of a number of theatrical movies on their Disney Plus platform with no theater, no cinema window at all and no paid window at all, meaning there was no moment where you could buy it on iTunes, for instance, before it went to Disney Plus. That drove their subscriber numbers up very dr- drastically and very, very quickly. And they did this, including with the Hamilton movie, for instance. You know, they did it repeatedly. They had it scheduled and and, and it worked very well. It, it pissed a number of people off, including Scarlett Johansson, fam- famously, because they did this occasionally without necessarily reading the details of the contract or deciding that, you know, they would ask for forgiveness later on. Uh, but, but it was a worthwhile, um, I think, bet for them 
whether it still is, that's the question. And I think what they're saying now is probably it's it's not anymore. It's you know, and people are coming back to at least some exclusivity in the window. The people who never completely gave up on on the on the cinema uh, is uh, are Sony, and the reason is that Sony doesn't have a streaming streaming platform. So for them, it's it's a much more straightforward decision. Do I put it in cinemas first and get the box office number, or do I sell it directly to a streaming platform? Well, I'm better off putting it in cinemas first. And indeed, when they released uh, their big, big film of the year, which was uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, they gave it a 90-day theatrical window, which is equivalent to to the historical window. It used to be 90 days always. You would see a movie in in the cinemas, and then three months later, usually there would be a first window on on tv on um one of the main channels and then after probably a couple of years you'd have a secondary window somewhere else so that would have been the normal the normal structure now what what sony did was the equivalent they did 90 days purely theatrical and then they put it on in in tvod in transactional vod where you have to pay to watch it and then eventually it will make its way to the streaming platform but they are actively limiting that they are going very much for transactional revenues disney had gone completely the other way as you mentioned maureen and they are rowing back to something that is probably around a 30 to 45 days window in movies in theaters and then moving it to their to their streaming platform, so they still remain uh, the exclusive distributor of content post cinemas. But there are a lot apart from the money. There is a, the, the box office money. There is one big advantage of putting a movie in the cinemas is that discovery is much easier. People know it's there. It's what what studios have really started to realize is it's very very difficult to launch a movie on a streaming platform. Uh, you. you you just there's so much you know you just they get missed and so uh whereas when it is in the in the cinema and you can see it when you drive past and people talk about it and your friends say oh last week i went to see this movie etc you do get a, a buzz around the movie that and, and a sort of moment where you can you can really uh create a, a campaign, you can do a red carpet, all of these things, which are very important for promotion of movies, especially the big blockbusters that have been so expensive. So yes, I think we're, we're, we've, we've gone, we've probably seen the back of the 90 day window because there's unlikely, except for very specific exception that we will go back to such a long window. But I think we're going back to something around 30 to 45 days for most movies. And I think it will stabilize around around that number with some smaller launches uh, having slightly different uh, strategies. I think think that there was also a point here. I mean, all the studios benefited from, this is pre-pandemic, from Universal's attempt with Trolls. And and a couple of years back, I ran the numbers to see uh, that, that that experiment did work for, for Universal because if they did not have to pay 50% of the revenues to the cinema chain. So there is uh, definitely an economic incentive, though there was at the time, an economic incentive to uh, to stream. Um, but, but, but I think we're seeing with the reopening um, of the cinemas, plus also, as you mentioned, Claire, like Sony in particular, uh, having this firm allegiance to uh, believing in the cinemas would reopen and they were in no way going to put their tempo uh, uh, 
films, you know, on directly on, on on streaming one because they didn't have their own service, but two on any of the competitors. So so it's a really really smart play. But but for the others, you could see the to some extent the economics were working in their favour, um, simply from just um, uh, you know the the, the 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 fact that they could take eighty to ninety percent of the revenues, you know, and also the data associated with uh, the information associated with. Plus, also with with, with watching the, the, the film. Plus, also this idea of um, you know the introduction of what was called premium video on demand. So, not only were Disney Plus, for example, getting the base subscription of of their six dollars, they were also getting twenty dollars or even thirty dollars for showing of that premium film. Um, it's just that they need to understand needed to understand how many people were going to watch that uh, and had they got the pricing right. They certainly got the pricing low enough to attract people to buy it and particularly for Mulan that was one that they tested but the, but the interesting thing I, I I'm struggling with and I, I want to know what your thoughts are around this Claire is it is around this discovery and 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 they're looking to cinemas as 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 you rightly say as a point at which or you know in your local markets you will see that there is you know the the cinema promotes almost you know that the, that the film will be shown in a, in a week or two's time or on the side of a bus and that for me seems so antiquated and doesn't necessarily justify why you know you continue to use you know cinemas as a mode of discovery and, and so and i think it's one of the hollywood studios now has acquired a ticketing pro, uh, company and i'm just wondering ticketing companies are probably a really interesting route to you and me to our you know the film goers uh, or film watchers, I should say, because they'll have, again, access to data and, and series of patterns of my behaviour, of what I'm going off to see, when I'm going to see it, what type of you know genre of film, and then start to promote quite cleverly, or should be able to, through this ticketing business, uh, to me, you know, in advance of a film being shown. So I just wonder if there is an alternative way to cleverly mine the data through another traditional means of you know on the, on the supply chain or on the value chain and ticketing seems an obvious one i don't know what you think about that claire so uh first of all to go back to your point about them t- being able to take a much bigger chunk of the money i just want to say yes but so first of all if they are putting it on a platform like apple or amazon as a as a as a paid vod they are going to have to pay apple and amazon whatever amount of revenue share they take, so maybe 30%. So it's not zero. It's lower Uh, than 50. It's lower than 50. It's lower than 50. They have to look at the price of the the film on those platforms and whether it's it's equivalent to a cinema ticket. But also when they are putting it on, so that's if they're putting it as a paid VOD, which some of them are, but it's actually a minority of movies then. The premium VOD, I agree, is all benefits to Disney if they can make it work, but it reduces the size of the audience because you can only get the premium VOD if you're a subscriber to Disney. So if you've decided already that you don't want to subscribe to your Disney platform, then then those people will not have access to the film. So it's it's much more profitable, but with a reduced audience. The straight to streaming, straight to subscriber, yes, you keep 100% of your subscription money, but remember that that subscription money has to pay for all the content and all the platform, not just that movie. So... I think there are, I'm sure there are some very clever mathematical models to show, you know, where exactly, what exactly the number has to be in order to, to you know, to, to make this a more profitable venue. But it's not quite as straightforward as that. To go back to your advertising, 
yes, of course. There. So I, you know, there there are a lot of very smart what I would call below the line advertising systems to make you aware of things that you personally, Maureen, would like. And I, I, I call them below the line advertising because actually they are just a very smart way of doing direct marketing. You used to get, you know, catalogs in the post and now you'll get an ad printed on your ticket or you'll get a, a targeted ad on Google or Netflix because they know that you, Maureen, like that movie and therefore probably will like this other movie. So that's, it's, it's very targeted. What the internet generally and, and targeted advertising in particular doesn't do well is what I would call above the line advertising. It's awareness. And that's what cinemas do very well, because most people who go to the cinemas will find out about other movies by watching the previews in the cinema. And it's not just the back of the bus and, you know, word. It's, it's also the fact that you're in the cinema and suddenly you, you are served a number of ads for other movies that are, yes, probably catered to the movie that you're going to see, but not exclusively and fairly wide. And therefore you find out about other movies. There's been stats showing that that's how most people find out about movies is through the previews in the cinemas. Uh, and um, what we're seeing with this new world that we're living in, when fewer people are watching big shows on TV, fewer people go to the movies, fewer people commute even, and you know are in the tube and see outdoor advertising, is that above the line advertising is becoming harder and harder to do. So if you want to do a mass awareness campaign where you want everybody to get a specific message, not a few people to get the message, but everybody, like say you're doing Spider-Man, you want everybody to know there's a new Spider-Man, not just you know people who you think might like Spider-Man because this is a you know it's a family movie that should attract everybody. It becomes much harder. So there are fewer and fewer opportunities to do this. So for big, for smaller budget movie, I agree. Movies, I agree that you can do targeted advertising. For the very big, the James Bond, the the the, the Spider-Man, the the Marvels. It's very much about awareness. No people, letting people know when it's coming and that it's coming. And that is becoming harder and harder to do. And theatrical was one way to do that. Because you'd go and see Spider-Man and you'd be told, you'd be told that the next Marvel movie was coming out. Whereas now you need to find other ways of telling people and that's becoming very, very expensive. So mass marketing is an area that people haven't quite figured out in this new world that we're in. Yeah. It's a yeah. dynamic yeah, so, uh, so radical and so... Uh, so fast moving i suppose people have massive tv screens now so the cinematic experience can be replicated in the in the house a lot easier um again sport looks wonderful on a massive tv particularly cricket and football and you've then you've got the kids saying can we get to the cinema because it's a day out and i get my popcorn and i get my uh revels revels was my favorite as a child it's so funny you talk about windowing i remember in the 70s when i grew up i suppose the window felt like it was about three years long because you didn't see the latest james bond until christmas day so it was three or five years later we all had to sit down and uh, not say a word because um Dad was a bit deaf. Um, we have to move on to uh, short and long. I have to make one observation, though. I'm very, very surprised, Claire, that you're a consultant, a, such a successful consultant. When you come up with phrases like you did at the top of the show, you said, I'm sure Netflix know what they're doing. No consultant ever has ever said that. We all go back to head office and bitch about how stupid our customers are. None of my customers are stupid. Uh, sometimes <laughs> yeah. they have you know, uh, other ways of thinking. But I certainly would never uh, call them stupid on a public forum. 
Well, you are speaking like a trusted advisor, uh, which which is what you are. We have to go to short and long now, uh, despite the fact that we could probably talk hours. And I keep on hearing uh, use cases for optimization and categorization. And I think uh, the data being available, notwithstanding, Claire, your point, I think AI has a great place to play. So that means we'll probably be talking long and hard for many years to come. Short and long, just quickly before we wrap, as we say in media, um, Elon Musk, short or long? Uh, Maureen? Long. Claire? Long. Yeah. I think you have to. Whatever happens to him, you can't take your eyes off him. Twitter? Uh, Claire this time. Long. Short. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Great. I love it when they slightly disagree. I think Twitter, um, I think actually after being not convinced by their initial response, they are... um, they are being better at reacting and managing the situation that I perhaps gave them credit for originally. Yeah, what about Talk TV? Maureen, I'll start with you. Short. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree? I, 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 I don't see it going on. I mean, I think it, I think it might be reinvented as something slightly different, but as it currently stands, short. And knowing knowing news, sorry, and knowing news, if if it news UK, if if it's not working, they will yeah. they, they take action very quickly. So, so cinemas long, long. Um, do I think long? I think the cinemas that understand that they have to reinvent themselves into a more of a premium experience will do very well. Agile cinemas is definitely a long. Uh, media agencies, WPP, and let's bu- bundle some Martin Sorrel into that. Claire first. Is it all one? Or was that, is that all one? Or was that... Well, you can do it either way, but there's obviously a link. Uh, so, so Martin Sorrel, I, I think people are getting a bit mm, about him. Sorry, that's a very technical term. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, um, Sounds a bit short, short to me. Yeah. Short. Short in stature and short in length. <laughs> Which is something I wouldn't say on a public platform. Um, let's just go quickly TikTok, and we've got to close. Uh, long for TikTok. Long. So I, you know, interestingly, I uh, was talking to somebody in Australia recently who said that they started commissioning content in Asia, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I know. Oh, there you go. Good Lord. You heard it here first. So, yes, interesting uh, development. So, yes, long, long on, um, on TikTok for sure. Ladies, yeah, I thought you were going to agree. Ladies, we've come to the end. It's been a bumper edition um, on something that was, uh, uh, you'd have thought, maybe uh, a sort of peripheral subject, but has great breadth and depth, which we've explored brilliantly. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next one. Have wonderful days, uh, and I'll see you uh, on a platform near you soon. Or maybe we could get this um, podcast advertised on buses from what you've been telling me. Uh, See you again soon. Bye. Thank you, Oliver. Bye for now.